Tick-tock, tick-tock, thus goes the clock. Real time. We sleep in real time. We eat in real time. We work in real time. We play in real time. But what about our Christian faith? Do we live it out, really, in real time? Join us for the sermon series, Christianity in Real Time. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We have this Sunday and one more Sunday in our study of the book of James. And then uh, May 9th, one of the good gifts, wonderful gifts that God has given to our church family is a large number of godly women, and so on that Sunday, May 9th, which is also Mother's Day, we're going to celebrate what it means to be a godly woman and celebrate the godly women that God has given us in this wonderful church. May 16th is going to be our graduate recognition service. We'll recognize our graduates on that day, and I want you to take May 23rd Circle it on your calendar and plan to be here. We're going to have that day a a very, very special service of worship, and I want you to be a part of it. Uh, Tell us more. No, just uh, plan to be here. I think you will be blessed by it and encouraged by it. And uh, then on Sunday, uh, May 30th, we will begin a new study I like to move from the New Testament to the Old Testament, so we are finishing our study of the book of James, and so we're going to move back to the Old Testament and look at the book of Daniel. So we will do a study of the book of Daniel together. I'll introduce that study on May 30th, and then we will move forward in our study of the book of Daniel. As we prepare our hearts uh, for the Lord's Supper this morning and gather under James 5, 1 through 11, I pray that all of us in this room who are believers, that, that you never get over the fact that you are a sinner, you will live and die as a sinner, and you are saved by the grace of God. That ought to overwhelm you. That ought to stir in your soul so deeply that God saved me and that he called me to himself, that he has given me the gift of eternal life, his Holy Spirit living in me to govern my life and to guide my life. That there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy me and there's nothing in this world I even desire. I desire him. Uh, My love is to him. My loyalty is to him. I can't live long enough to thank him enough that when I was a sinner, he saved me exclusively, totally, by his grace. We will celebrate the symbols of that grace in the bread and the cup in just a little bit, but first let's listen to the Word of God, James 5. If you're able to stand, please do so to honor God and the reading of His Word. Come now, 
you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now you've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, in verse 7, James makes a very, very real and a very radical transition, and you will see it in the opening words, in the words, brothers, sisters. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen... The purpose of the Lord, that is, you've seen how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we, in these moments, by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds, our feelings, our emotions, our wills to you. We are gathered here in this place in the presence of your Holy Spirit under the Lordship of Jesus and the authority of your inerrant word. We know that when you speak to us, you speak to us through your word. We hear from you by way of your word. So I pray that you would help us today to be faithful to your word, to focus on your word and to hear today what you are saying to us in your word and call us to yourself by your grace and mercy. Prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Bernie Madoff died April 14th, 2021. He was 82 He created, he crafted, and he conducted the most seemingly profitable Ponzi scheme in the history of our country. He he was not the first to 
try to defraud well-intentioned people of money, he will not be the last. He is one of among many sinners who express their sin in this way. They seek to exploit others for financial gain for themselves, and their only fear while doing it is that they will get caught. And typically, their only guilt after getting caught is that they got caught. Bernie Madoff got caught, but apparently he was really good at this ruinous evil. The Federal Securities and Exchange Commission on several different occasions thought that they had figured out his scheme. They, in fact, knew that he was doing something that was horribly evil, but they couldn't catch him. And on at least three occasions, they went in to investigate knowing that they would find the evidence and they could not find it. He was good at being evil. What they could not find was found for them in the year 2008. Many of you remember the year 2008 and the economic collapse in our country in 2008 that provided the perfect storm for Bernie Madoff to get caught. And he was caught. He was sent off to prison. He died April 14th, 2021. Madoff's wife was left with nothing. She went from abundant bounty by this world's standards to bankruptcy. Madoff had two sons. One died from from what many think was just the sheer stress, the overwhelming stress of what all went on during those days and in the aftermath of his conviction and being carried off to prison, the other killed himself. Many who invested with him huge amounts of money, we're talking in the millions of dollars of money, were left bereft of anything. This man led, multiplied thousands of people astray, exploiting them For his gain, many of them who went in one day from enjoying life and the good gifts of the monetary and material goods of this life to nothing. Bernie Madoff went from a life of pursuing pleasure, going wherever he wanted to go, doing whatever he wanted to do, pleasure as defined by this world, to a life of pain that was spent in prison with all of what goes on in prison. He died. He died alone. As far as we know, he died completely unrepentant. And just like all of us in this room, when he died, he faced the full and final judgment of God. It is appointed unto man once to die, the Bible says, and after that, the judgment. 
Paul speaks these words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything that we need to enjoy. James brings his letter to a close with five warnings. And after those five warnings, he issues a very positive and powerful and most encouraging commendation to all of us who are believers. This commendation comes in the end. We will get to it next week. But we need to hear what James is speaking here in the context of these five warnings. Two of them we've already heard, beginning in chapter 4, verse 11. The first warning is that if in a local church we as believers are joined to one another, then there is something that will not happen. When believers are together in the body of Christ, we will not speak against one another. And we will not speak down to one another. To do so consistently and continually is simply to demonstrate that we are not believers. The evidence that we're believers is that we are brought by the grace of God into a local church where we join together with other believers to worship God and to do the work of God and from which we go to witness to the gospel And we dwell together as those who encourage one another because we love one another. His first warning is, don't speak against one another. Don't speak down to one another. His second warning is to people of means in the church who are believers. And he warns them not to boast about their lives, to act as if They're in control of their lives. They can go whenever they want to go. They can do whatever they want to do. Their lives are not in their hands. So his warning is, don't plan your life as if you're in control of your life. Plan your life knowing that God's in control of your life. So say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will go to this place or that place. If the Lord wills, we will buy this thing or that. But don't live. Remind yourself every day that you belong to God and your life is in God's hands. The third warning is a warning to the rich in this age who are not Christians. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 is not written to believers. These are pagan people. And they're powerful people. Now, they're prominent people in the community to which James is writing, and they're prosperous people. But they're not God's people. And yet, there is this warning to them that we need to hear because everybody needs Jesus. And those who are living as if in their money and material goods, they have everything and don't need anything. They are greatly deceived by the darkness of the demons of hell. And they need somebody to love them and care care for them enough to communicate the truth of Jesus. The fourth warning is 
is found in verses 7 through 11. And it's to Christians who are living in the midst of suffering and pain. And the warning is that we don't live in the present as if there's, that is all there is. We live toward the future. We live from the future. We know that whenever this life is over as a child of God, we are immediately, instantaneously going to heaven. We know that. We're absolutely certain of that. And we live for that. We long for that. Because we all know, and we will know this increasingly as believers in our culture, living under the lordship of Jesus is hard. And in the context of our culture, it will get harder. And we will, as believers, long more and more to go home. Please, Lord Jesus, come. James tells us how to live. And then the final warning is one little verse in verse 12 where James tells us straightforwardly, don't compromise your commitment to Jesus as Lord for anyone, for any reason. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We see the connection in this text between James 4.13 and James chapter 5, verse 1. Look at James 4.13. It says, come now. That's how it begins. Come now in the English Standard Version. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Come now. It's a unique phrase in the Greek language. It, it really means something like, come on, man. It's a call for us to get our eyes open to see the realities that are all around us. In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, James is speaking to believers who have been blessed monetarily and materially, and he's calling them to live their lives knowing that God is in control. And then in chapter 5, Verses 1 through 6, he is writing to those who have been blessed of God because every good gift comes from God. Those who have been blessed of God monetarily and materially, but they are not believers. I think it's important for me to say here and just say it very clearly that the Bible never condemns wealth. I think sometimes in our culture, we think that if a person has been blessed monetarily and materially, that they for sure are under the judgment of God. That is not in Scripture. Abraham was an exceedingly wealthy man. Jacob would come to a place in time in his life where he was richly blessed materially. We know that in the early church, Barnabas was a wealthy man. So were Ananias and Sapphira. But you see the difference between the two. One was generous, the other was greedy. But though the Bible never condemns wealth, the Bible is clear that wealth, that is the blessing of God with money and material goods, can be dangerous. Do we know that? Because the temptation for those with money and material goods, the temptation, if you're normal, that is if you're a sinner, the temptation is to be greedy, not to be generous. 
Uh, the temptation is to focus on ourselves, to close ranks with me and mine and my family, and we are very generous there. But outside that, we are very greedy, and we are very greedy so we can be more generous within the close ranks of those who are closest to us. Wealth is dangerous. That's why Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures that are in heaven. Uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, Paul addresses this issue very clearly so that we can see it. I've read a part of this this morning. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, listen to what Paul says. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, this text is so often misquoted and misinterpreted, the love of money is a root, not the root. It is a root. It's one of many roots. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And verse 17, where we quoted earlier at the beginning of the sermon as for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy they are to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. As a pastor over the years in the church, I have known people who are very blessed financially and materially who are very, very generous. I've also known as a pastor people who have been blessed financially and materially who are very, very greedy. And both professing to be believers, but one being generous, the other being greedy. I have known people who have little or nothing who are very generous. The last time I was in Belarus, the last day I was there, a woman I knew with her husband who had nothing. I mean, literally, they had nothing. And she had spent time, I don't know how much time, doing a needlepoint for me to take home with me. That cost her money, and it cost her time and energy. That's generosity. I've known people who don't have much who are greedy, and I've known people who don't have much that are generous, and the greedy ones who are always wanting things for themselves, their focus is on themselves and they just want people to take care of them, contrary to what the Bible teaches. Johnny Hunt says you don't have to have a lot of money to be generous. You have to be generous in order to be generous. 
Generosity is not about how much you have. It's an attitude of the heart that is formed in our hearts by the Spirit of God. We know that we brought nothing into this world. We're not going to take anything out of this world. So not, why not work at, pray at, strive for being givers? So James comes to these people who are very rich. Come on now. Come on, man, you rich. They're wretchedly rich. They're lost and they're losers and they don't even know it because they're surrounded by so much wealth. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. For the miseries, plural, that are coming upon you. They're on their way and they're coming upon you. These are people who have already been handed over to the judgment of God. They're under the wrath of God. God has turned them over to their own lifestyles because they have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And James says, the miseries are coming and they won't be stopped. You will face the full force of the judgment of God. And you need to weep and howl. Two words that are deeply emotional terms. That means to cry until you've cried your eyes out. Have you ever cried so much over a situation that you couldn't cry anymore and your stomach hurt? Your stomach was sore because you had cried so much because whatever you're crying over is so painful and so hurtful that all you can do is cry and you can't stop crying until you can't cry anymore. This is what James is saying. Uh, You people who have depended on yourself and your gain and your greed. This is what is happening. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Some liberal commentators say this is hyperbole because gold cannot corrode. Gold does not rust. Well, these liberal commentators don't know my God. Because my God can raise up a mountain and bring down a mountain. My God can take a sea and part it and people can go through on dry ground. My God can prepare a fish in the depths of the sea to swallow a human being. And the human being made the fish sick and the fish spit him back out. My God can do anything. He can speak a word and bring worlds into being. My God can make gold rust. They are... So sure of themselves and what they have that all of this will be lost and it will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. It will consume you because the end of verse three, you have laid up treasure. You've laid up treasure. You've shown what is your life. You have invested in what is your life. You've laid up treasure in the last days. What is the characteristic of lives like this? Greed and getting for ourselves by exploiting others. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Turn back to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, Jesus is approached by someone in the crowd. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Verse 
But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? You know what Jesus says? This is not my business. You shouldn't be having this conversation anyway. This is what fleshly, worldly people think about. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, greediness. The word is greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, now listen here for the first person singular pronouns. They dominate. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, that is self, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry, but, but God. This was the man's final word. I will do what is good and right for me to accumulate and acquire so that I will have enough for as long as I live to live how I want to live, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know what greed is? Greed is when God has been kind enough to give you enough to sustain your life so that you can have food, clothing, and shelter, the basic things of life, And yet there's something in you that can't say enough. You always want more and more and more and more. Greed. Greed will rot your soul. And greed will keep you from being generous It will cause you to use people for your advantage rather than to love people. You exploit people for gain. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. You defrauded people. You did not pay them proper wages. You did not care for them as you should. And the harvesters that you mistreated because you did not treat them in the way that you should God has heard their cry. What was your problem? You lived on the earth for your own luxury, your own advancement. You lived self-indulgently. You fattened your heart. You had enough, but you had to have more, and you didn't know you were facing the judgment of God You rejected the gospel. Verse 6 is thought by many to refer to Jesus. He is the righteous person. You've condemned him. You've murdered him. You killed him. He didn't even resist you. You know, one of the differences between believers and unbelievers when we have people who work for us is that believers see those who work for us that are unbelievers, we see them primarily as people who need Jesus. 
And we love them and we care for them and we minister to them and we share the gospel with them. We don't just use them to advance our cause. Believers who have believers working for them, they're not workers, they're brothers and sisters. We care for them, we minister to them, we rejoice in them, we share what God is doing in our lives with them. We do not use them as if they're objects that we can exploit to advance our own life. There are many people who who find themselves in situations where on the job or in the community or in relationships, they are mistreated. And often mistreated by people who profess to be believers. In fact, in some cases, those who are employed by such people would be shocked to learn that these are professing believers simply because of the way they operate at work. Go back to the gospel of Luke with me very quickly. Luke chapter 16. I wonder sometimes, I do wonder this, How many of us really believe this passage is true? We think it's a story. This is no parable. This is a true rendition of what happened. Verse 19, Luke 16, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. More even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He doesn't need mercy from Abraham. He needs mercy from Jesus. Send Lazarus. He's still exploiting Lazarus. To dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am anguish in, in anguish in this flame. And this rendition of the poor man who went to heaven and the rich man who went to hell ends with the rich man saying, please send someone to my brothers to warn them. And Abraham says, they've got the Bible. They've got the law and the prophets. If they don't listen to the word of God, they wouldn't listen if someone was raised from the dead. This is a warning. The Bible never condemns those who have been blessed monetarily and materially. But the Bible makes clear that it is dangerous for us. How many of you have learned a lot about who God is when God has prospered you? How many of you have learned about a lot about who God is when you've been in pain? It's our best teacher. 
That is why James turns now to brothers, brothers and sisters, be patient. Uh, You live in a world that will seek to harm you and hurt you. You live in a world that's ruled by Satan that will seek to seduce you. Be patient. He uses two words for patient here. One means to wait. The other means to work. Wait, work. Wait, witness. Trust God and do what God has called you to do. And he uses three pictures here. See them. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Here's his first picture, the farmer. The farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late range. You also be patient. I read a report several years ago, I referred to this Wednesday night, that said we in America lost a lot when we migrated from the farm to the city. In about 15 years, 85% of Americans will live in urban centers like Atlanta and Birmingham and Los Angeles. When we went from the farm to city, we, we lost so much. One of the things we lost was the lessons about patience. We want what we want when. Yeah, I heard somebody say right now, I think we moved to the place where we want what we want yesterday. Right now is okay. But from the farm, what do you learn? Praise God for living in an agricultural community. Praise God for those who trust God to send the rain. Of course, they have irrigation systems just in case. Praise God for those who farm. Praise God for them. Because they teach us that we sow the seed and we water the earth and we tend the soil and we Hold the weeds or however we remove them now. And we wait. We establish our hearts. That means we ground our hearts in the truth of God. We trust the truth of God. In verse 9. We know that God is doing good in our lives even when we can't see it. So we don't grumble. You know, one of the signs of someone who's in trouble with God and doesn't know it is someone who says, I'm a believer, and yet the persistent pattern of their lives is grumbling and complaining about everybody and everything. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, sisters. You're going to be judged by God if you keep doing that. He's standing at the door. God's doing good things in your life. You may be going through hard times right now, but God's doing good things in your life. Be patient, wait. Work. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patient, brothers, take the prophets. They're like Jeremiah who preached the word of God and they threw him in a cistern and they threatened to kill him. Isaiah, they saw it in two according to tradition. Take the prophets. They spoke in the name of the Lord, but they remained steadfast. They kept being faithful in the midst of facing all kinds of pain. Wait on God, work. Wait and work. 
You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You know what I learned this week that some of you probably already knew? This is the only time in the entire New Testament that Job is mentioned. The only time. I was shocked. I thought, Job, man, he's mentioned all the time, but he's not just here. That's important. You've heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. You know, Job's presence in James near the end is to show us the disconnect between the purpose of Satan and the purpose of God. You know the purpose of Satan in your life, believer? It's to distract you from your devotion to God. That's what it is. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and nothing happened. Satan. God. Keep praying. I have good purposes in your life. Don't give up. Don't quit. Satan. You've witnessed to that person ten times and he's shown no movement toward the gospel The gospel has no power, and you have no ability. Well, you do have no ability, but the gospel has power. God, keep loving, keep praying, keep witnessing, keep telling. In the end, what Job received is what Job most needed. It's what we all need to know that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You read the end of Job and Job finally sees who God is. And what does Job do? He repents in dust and ashes. Job sees he deserves nothing from God. And God is gracious and merciful to him. That's good. That's God's good purpose in your life and my life. And it's demonstrated for us in the bread and the cup. A little bitty simple symbols of the earth, but they remind us that While we were yet in our sins, Christ died for us as the ungodly. That Jesus went to the cross by the design of God to redeem a people for God through his death on the cross, vindicated by the resurrection. This bread and cup remind us that there's not a single solitary person in this room, not one, that could stand before God today or any day and say, I deserve your goodness and your grace. I've been a good boy and good girl most of my life. If we know our hearts, what we say is, I deserve your unmitigated wrath. But I trust Jesus. 
who turned away your wrath. Because on the night that he was arrested and betrayed, you can take the top of your cup and peel back the pack, the top so we can eat together. On the night he was arrested and betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and says, this is my body, which is given for you. And we eat remembering what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. We remember Job and we remember the prophets. We are grateful for farmers. And we pray that you would teach us to wait on you in the midst of the varying circumstances of life, to wait and to be faithful to you. To be faithful to you like the prophets, even when for many of them it cost them their lives. God, we thank you for the wonderful and glorious gift that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the shedding of his blood for us. We rejoice in your grace and your mercy toward us. And I pray in these moments there would, there would be those in this room that don't know Jesus. They've never yielded their lives to Jesus. They've never bowed before him to acknowledge that he is Lord. That even in these moments under conviction of sin, under compelling call from the Holy Spirit, there would be those who would say, Jesus, I bow before you right now confessing my sin. And I want to love you as Lord and live for you. I pray those that have wandered away from you in their minds, in their hearts, in their ways of living would be brought back to you today. Knowing that you receive us with rejoicing when we return to you. And that today, we who are together seeking to follow you and be faithful to you would know how much we are dependent upon you and how much we need each other and each other's encouragement as we seek to walk in obedience to you and bring glory to your name. We rejoice in you and thank you for every expression of goodness and kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, take your uh, church covenant. You should find it in your bulletin or it will be on the screen. And we want to read 
share together our church covenant. Having been led by the Spirit of God to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and having entered into the fellowship of His church, the church prayerfully and joyfully makes this covenant with one another and with Him in order to love God and worship Him as the church reaches and disciples others for Christ, the church pledges with His help. Believing that the Bible is the authoritative, infallible Word of God and recognizing Jesus Christ as the head of the church, the church further proposes... ...pledge to maintain the spirit of this covenant wherever we go. Amen. Amen.